Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actress Constance Wu. Before she became a household name from her work in projects like Fresh Off the Boat and Crazy Rich Asians, Constance Wu was a full-time waitress in severe credit card debt who was trying to break into the TV and film industry. Despite her BFA in acting, Constance struggled to get steady acting work for nearly a decade. Her love of the craft never wavered, no matter how tough it was to deal with the rejection. But times got so tough, she finally had to ask herself, are you okay if you're still waiting tables at 50 in order to supplement your income so you can do one or two plays a year? Well, wholeheartedly, her answer was yes. Finally, when the creditors were stalking her, she got her big break. In 2015, she was cast opposite Randall Park in the groundbreaking and popular ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, a hilarious look at life as an Asian immigrant in America. Another historic role followed with the film Crazy Rich Asians, which featured an entirely Asian cast. Most recently, she's acting opposite J-Lo in the film Hustlers, a true story about a group of strip club employees who drug and rob their rich Wall Street clientele. Constance joins off-camera to talk about how privileged she feels to have a voice in the discussion about racial diversity in Hollywood, why she still loves going to acting class, and she also reveals the joys of sucking at guitar. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Constance. Hi, Sam. You know, I wanted to have you on after Crazy Rich Asians came out, Mm -hmm. and we tried to get you then, and you were obviously very busy, but your career has gone crazy, and I want to talk about Crazy Rich Asians, I want to talk about Fresh Off the Boat, I want to talk about your new movie, Hustlers, but I read something that I wanted to start with, which is, I read that you have a bit of a guitar collection. Is that true? Do you play guitar? I do play guitar. So tell me about that. Well, I'm very bad at it. Are you? (laughs) That's actually why it's, uh, I love it, because, well, just to give you a preface, when I was a kid, I played piano. Oh, you did? Okay. But what happened was, I got to the point playing piano where like I could read the sheet music and I could play the entire song and my mind could be thinking about what I was going to wear tomorrow. I I could tune out. That's how proficient I became. Also like I started young and you know when you're young your brain is a little more pliable. Sure, yeah. Um, which is what I tell myself as to why I'm still not good at guitar. But the thing I love about guitar is that um, because I'm bad at it, it forces me to be in the present moment. I can't tune out when I play it because otherwise I won't know what to do. And so when I'm like, I find that when I'm having like a bad day or I'm feeling depressed or something like that, usually it's because I'm dwelling on the past or I'm worrying about the future. And so the guitar for me, because I suck at it, makes me focus on the present. And I have to do certain things with it, like, because my hands are small and I have these weird pinkies. It's a thing. Um, <laughs> Wait, let's but see like, your pinkies. Oh, they're not that weird. No, look, look. Oh, they're a little. They're, they're a little crooked. crooked. Yeah, yeah. It, all, every woman in my family has these crooked pinkies. Really? I don't know what it signifies, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> crooked pinky gang. Yeah, but but because of that, I often have to um, modify chords that I play in the guitar, and so it really makes me just focus on the present moment. And I think when you do that. Um, I think it's just a good headspace for life. It's definitely a good headspace for being an actor. So you don't, when you're playing guitar, you don't, there's no self-critic going, you suck at this, you have to get better. You can actually enjoy it even though. Well, the enjoyment is the sucking of it. The enjoyment is the struggle to get better. 
just like any art form, the product is usually less exciting than the journey to get there, than the I actual totally experience of it. I totally agree with that. It. So, like, once I, like, get a song, I'm like, yeah, that's great. But what what's really exciting to me is the frustration I go through when I can't get it. And, like, powering through that um, is... It just feels activating, and uh, I... I like to be activated. Are you like a singer-songwriter-y type? Like, do you write songs? I'm a singer. I've always been a singer since I was a kid. I was actually a singer before I was an actor. It's funny how you always wonder what, what was the art form that, that turned the person on originally, even if it didn't turn out to be your profession. Yeah. Like, for you, was it singing? Was it writing? Was it Yeah, my acting? first love was writing. It was? Yeah. Really? And I really loved books as a kid. I have a semi-traumatic story about well, tell me. that. No, I can't. I'll probably start crying. We have tissues. No, I mean, I, I just had an experience with a... I, I really am going to start crying. What happened? I just had, like, a teacher who, like... She, like, accused me of plagiarism on this paper, and she said, she said, because you're not good enough to have written this. And then, really? and I was like, I did write it, and like the truth wasn't enough. So she looked up all my sources to see where I like plagiarized from, plagiarized from, which I didn't. And so um, she couldn't find it, but she was determined. So she marched me up in front of every single one of my other teachers and made them read the opening paragraph because that's the one she thought I plagiarized. Because she said there's too much style in this. And she How said, old were you? I was in middle school, so I think I was in eighth grade. 13, 12. God, that's horrible. Yeah, but she made me go in front of every single one of my teachers and had them read the first paragraph. And then she said to them, do you think Constance is good enough to have written this? And every teacher, except for one, said I wasn't good enough and that it was impossible that I had written it. Are you serious? And you know who the... I'm, this, is, this is so narratively perfect. Like, I don't even... You can't even write this. The one teacher who was like, of course she wrote it, was my drama teacher. Really? I didn't even realize the significance of the fact that Mr. Frizzell was the one who believed I wrote that term paper. I, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me because I was so focused on the trauma of having every single one of your other teachers say, you're not good enough to write this. I don't believe you. It's this, I feel like that scarred me for life in terms of I feel like the truth sometimes feels like it's not enough. Somebody still won't believe me except my drama teacher. God, well, uh, That's like you, it's a weird trauma. There. No, but where were your parents in all of this? Like when you first got accused, did it all happen in one day at school or did you go home and say, I've been accused of plagiarism? And No, I didn't. Not until, I mean, there's this weird thing that sometimes happens with the kids of immigrants. Okay. Which is in a strange way, sometimes you feel like you have to protect them from the things that they don't understand. So you as a kid of, are protecting your parents from... Yes. From the, when you're having a hard time at school. Dealing with teachers like this. And she was this teacher who had like a big personality and she was like, she like talked like this. And she was like, everybody thought she was so funny. She was so sure of herself. And my parents, while they are very educated, you know, my dad has a PhD in biology and he can write so beautifully. His grammar is better than like, most people who grew up in America, yeah. but his spoken accent is very strong and he has like a softer voice. And I remember there are many times where it's like, I don't want, like this woman is already thinking that I'm dumb and I'm not good enough. Like I'm not going to let her think that about my parents. 
just because like they talk differently. And I, I, as a kid, you know, you're just like, oh, they're gonna think that. It's like when, when somebody, when you, <laughs> it's like when you know somebody doesn't speak English, so you talk louder yeah, exactly. as the volume. <laughs> It's something that's missing, um, and it's not. And but but that's the thing that happens in in America is that like you think that your baseline is the baseline from which anybody else is a deviation and is like absurd and weird. When if you look at it objectively, knowing two languages is actually like way smarter. Um, and like something as simple as like uh, somebody grew up, growing up in America saying like. Uh-huh, Poo-poo platter. That's funny. Poo-poo. Why, why do uh, you know Asians have that terminology? They don't understand that maybe there's a word in English that sounds strange to them. Totally. Because it's like you have to get out of the box of saying, like, there is one normative standard. Um, and you have to just open your mind to just thinking that even though you physically are the center of your experience, that doesn't mean that there aren't other experiences that don't center you. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, The Real Real. Have you heard of The Real Real? Well, with The Real Real, you can own iconic luxury items at unreal values. The Real Real is the leading reseller of authenticated luxury from top designers at up to 90% off retail. Now, this is one of those deep dive black hole websites. So when you go check out therealreal.com, prepare to spend some time and prepare to really go deep into not only fashion and luxury, but a real history of brands and the artistry that goes along with that. Every item is authenticated by The Real Real's team of experts and new arrivals come in daily. You can shop from designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Rolex, Cartier, and hundreds more at literally up to 90% off retail prices. And The Real Real employs over 100 brand authenticators, gemologists, horologists, and art curators from around the globe who inspect thousands of items each day to ensure that every item is 100% authentic. You can shop and consign women's and men's luxury fashion, as well as fine jewelry, watches, art, and home goods. You can shop online or visit one of their original stores in Soho or West Hollywood, or their newest location at 870 Madison Avenue in New York. You can also visit one of their luxury consignment offices in Chicago, Dallas, Miami, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. And if you go into the store, new customers receive an automatic $25 off at checkout. And like I said at the beginning of this, The Real Real is a deep dive into brand design, fashion, luxury, art history, designers. I mean, it really is an experience to go on the site. You'll find yourself looking at things and learning about things that you had no idea you were interested in. So please take a minute, check out The Real Real, and make sure you download the app so you can see the latest things that come in and you can dive into The Real Real on the go. Best off, for our listeners, they're giving 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's therealreal.com, promo code REAL. And now back to the show. So set the scene for me a little bit in terms of, you grew up in Virginia, right? Yeah. So that must have been weird, too, that when all these teachers are, are lining up and saying, you didn't do this, there's already this, well, I, you know, my parents are different. And like, when did you first start clocking that, I don't know, otherness or that sense that your experience is going to be different because you were in a place where there just wasn't a lot of you? In terms of being aware of it or thinking about it too much when I was a kid, I don't remember thinking about that. Now, I don't know if that's because it 
really wasn't true. I don't know if it's uh, because I'm in denial. Um, but my experience growing up in uh, all WASPy neighborhood uh, was just kindness. I never thought about my race being a hindrance or an obstacle because there was always another obstacle that I thought was the um, cause of my woes. And usually, and I, I don't love this about myself, but I am aware of it about myself. Usually it was myself. I was really hard on myself. So usually I would say like, oh, I didn't get this part because I'm not pretty enough or because I'm a bad actor. I need to be prettier. <laughs> I need to like get better at acting. I never, I mean, there's a narrative going around. People think that I'm like, oh, I didn't get parts because I was Asian. I never said that. I've said that other people feel right. that way. But me, I always tended to blame myself, um, which is, I don't think, psychologically very good. But I think it has a good function in that it's, like, activating for me. Because then mean? I could actually, rather than, like, blame your woes on some external factor. It made you work harder. Well, no, because I'm not that hard of a worker. <laughs> like, it, but it made me... Um, it just there was something that I could do about it right um, right and, you know becoming a good actor is kind of like in a way it's the opposite of hard work it's tell, me, tell me about that because in Asian American culture it's like hard work academics these like structural things this will get you to uh, this job which will lead you to have this kind of a bank account etc and in acting, you can't, you can't be results-oriented. Right. There's no linear, uh, this equals this, and if you yeah. do these steps, you'll get this. I mean, you can, and there are certain actors who are like, oh, this is the part of the scene where she becomes vulnerable. This is the part of the scene where she realizes something, and you sort of prescribe beats and moments in the scenes. There are certainly actors who do that. For me, when I do that, I find that my performances start to become static and dead. There's no life in them. There's no magic in them. Whereas if I am truly in the moment, the way I am when I play guitar poorly, right. and I sort of let the character speak through me and let surprises happen to me that I never would have thought would happen in the scene, like you laugh at a weird place, or you like, that's when um, a performance comes alive for me because it's not prescriptive and it's not about hard work and making sure you understand the character. Because really you have to, not have hard work, but you have to have abandon, right. a sense of abandon in order to like get to that magic place. The hard work comes before. So you have like a life that guides in your moments of abandon because you want it to come alive. And you also want to collaborate with your fellow actor. Right, if you have too strict of a plan and someone comes in, they're not doing what you thought the other side of the plan was, yeah. then you're lost. And right? there are actors who want you to do what their side of the plan was. And I'm actually happy to do that because I think the most fun thing is, again, the exchange between two people. And I think anything that I come up with on my own will never be as exciting and alive as something that I could discover with another person, especially if they have a different view of the scene. Right. Because of them having a different take on the scene, that's what's going to steer me into op directions that I don't even, I never thought of. And then they're going to happen organically. And then, uh, and then it's, it's just going to feel new and, uh, and not so like prescriptive. What you're describing is you had to discover that to be good, you had to not be hard on yourself. But what it yeah. makes me curious about is like, where do you think your being hard on yourself comes from? 
I don't know, actually, because people assume it's my parents. They assume that my parents were really hard on me. Um, they weren't. Did they sort of expect you to, to get along on your own? Or, or, like, what was sort of the message that they gave you guys about making your way in the world or well, dealing with resistance or whatever? Well, I have three sisters, right? Okay. So I have two older sisters and one younger sister. And it kind of feels like we're two separate groups. So the oldest two are only a year apart. And then there's a big gap. And then comes me, and then two years later, my little sister. That is so funny. I had the same thing growing up. Which number were you? I was the second one, and so I was in the first group, and, and I think my parents were totally different parents to, exactly. to and, my sister and I. And then five-year gap, my younger sister's same, born. yeah. And so that's why I say I can never know what my two older sisters' experience right. was like. I really can't. So it is very possible that they had it a lot harder than me and that they... Um, were more focused academically. Um, I guess I just feel like my parents really didn't police me in anything I did. I think if I had been, like, doing heroin, maybe they would have. But, like... You'd hope. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, my parents, I don't think, were hard on me academically, but I think they wanted me to be somewhat wholesome. Right. And that was natural for me until I moved to New York and started... Dark Constance came out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, they, I just when did you, what I wanted. I was I was pretty free. Were you ambitious enough about being an actor that you came to them at one point and said, "This is what I want to do with my life"? Oh, I didn't tell them. I didn't ask them. It like, sounds like I'm your parents to, weren't really around. Uh, no, they were around. <laughs> like, listen, I'm going to take a sip of my water. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to ask my parents first. I'm going to take a sip of this water. Mm-hmm. Is it okay? Um, I just sort of did it. Um, I mean, there are certain things you do need permission for, like if you want to go, uh, if you want to go on a trip and you don't have money, yes. and you need money, you're like, can I have this money to go on this trip? But in order to be an actor, you don't need money. You don't. I mean, I always say that I think I was successful as an actor before I even found success. How so? Because it's it's all about your work. And you know, so many actors I think go into auditions thinking the goal is to get the job. Right. And that is what I think screws up a lot of people because the goal should be to fully realize the character and tell their truth in the best way, the most honest, raw, authentic way you can. So if you do that in the audition room, or your performance, or your acting class, or your fucking bedroom with, like, your roommate. And you really capture that, and you get in there, and you have the, you have the abandon, you have the imagination, you have the spontaneity. That's the success. The other th- stuff is just stuff. But you must have had to discover that. You must have oh, had to sure. have gone the other way Oh, I had a, a moment. Oh, you did? Yeah. Tell me about that. I mean, I was, like, a waitress for over 10 years. Okay, so you know, let's so, back up a little bit. So yeah. when you left high school... Did you go off to college with a major in mind? Like, yes. Okay. I, got, uh, I got my Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting from a conservatory for theater arts. Okay. And it was a very strict, selective program, you know, that we started out with 25 people in our whole class, and then they made cuts, right? Okay. So if you weren't a good actor or you weren't whatever, they cut you out of the program. But then right after I graduated, uh, there's a thing called consortium, which is like the five top drama schools in the country do this showcase for uh, agents and managers. Okay. Um, and then you get the sheet of paper 
and it says like this person wants you to call or whatever, <laughs> and then. Um, and then you go and you meet these agents and you meet these casting directors and then you pound the pavement every day and you go to auditions and you read backstage and you look for the equity chorus calls and uh, you go sign up for them and wait all day and just trudge along for a really long time. And I did for the longest time. The goal was to get a job, obviously, right? Right, sure. I love acting. I want to be an actor. And, and, and I were you supporting to be able to pay yourself? My rent. Or were I your was parents supporting, supporting you? I've always been supporting myself. Really? Yeah. I get the sense that just from the way you tell your stories that you're really independent. I don't know, like in comparison to other people, if I'm independent, because I actually feel quite needy, like emotionally needy a lot. I think if you looked at my resume of life, you might think that I was independent. But um, I'm very in touch with my heart's need for connection and for like. People. So to say I'm independent feels like a lie, even though I can completely understand why I would come off that way. Hey folks, a quick break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. Now, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, you've heard me talk about Helix Sleep. I sleep on a Helix Sleep mattress every night, and I have to say it's great. You know, Helix Sleep has this quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So I took the quiz, and I ended up landing on a mattress that I don't think I would have gotten unless I did take the quiz. And I was worried it was going to be a little too soft or a little too plush, and then it showed up, and I slept on it, and I was amazed at how good my back felt. Also, if you listen to this show, you know that I'm a skateboarder and a motorcycle rider, and I do a lot of things that sort of take a toll on my body. And... I have had back issues my whole life, and I have to say, since getting this mattress, true story, I sleep so much better, I have less back pain, it's just a great experience. They're a great company, so if you're in the market for a new mattress or you just want to sleep better, you have to try Helix Sleep. Whether you're a side sleeper or a hot sleeper, with Helix there's no more confusion and no more compromising on an average mattress. And they were even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine. So there's that. Those people do a lot of sleeping. So just go to helixsleep.com slash off camera, take their two minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. And for couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. And best of all, they have a 10 year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights, risk free. The only way that that deal works for Helix is if people don't return the mattresses, by the way. Because can you imagine if they sent out mattresses all the time and people slept on them for 100 nights and sent them back? Couldn't really resell those mattresses. So what I take from that is that people love these mattresses like I did. So check it out and do it through off-camera because for our listeners, Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders. That's right, you can get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash off-camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off-camera for up to $125 off your mattress order. Now back to the show. I guess I'm wondering, when you went up for a certain part, maybe you got a call back, say this is three years into your acting career, and say you didn't get it. Ugh, the worst. Would you go, like, suffer in silence, or would you call home, or would you... Like, who, who would you turn to at that point when you felt despondent? Or did you just power through and... For me, when I didn't get a part, there was a... I didn't call home and 
try to get comfort or anything because I, there's actually a lot of shame attached to it. Really? Because, yeah, I mean, this is why you want a job because you think employment is a measure of your self-worth. And when you can't get something that is, I guess, the currency of your self-worth, you're ashamed because you don't think, oh, I'm not worth anything. I'm not worthy of love. Why would I call this person? They don't want me to call because why would they? Because I'm worth nothing. This is past me, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it still comes back a little bit. But yeah, so shame and my attachment uh, I think it, my attachment to results would often trigger my shame, and shame was something that kept me isolated and not reaching out for help. So maybe that's why I seem independent. Yeah. Maybe no. it's all because of my shame. And, but, and, but, but that's also why I feel a deep need for connection, because you need... The people who are ashamed probably need it the most for somebody to be like, no, you're... You're loved and valued as is. Right. You don't have to have these check marks of success. Well, isn't that the classic artist where, on one hand, you need that attention and, and that being seen, but on the other hand, it's not because you want to be seen and, and it's, there's still this great hole of insecurity or of, of wondering if you're worthy. And, and it's that weird balance that I think creates an artist in the first place is that, is that you feel like you have to create and make something to be worthy, right? It's true. And that's another, that's, not, that's probably my next great struggle because, you know, I think that I've gotten over the idea that employment equals self-worth, but maybe that's because I have employment now. Do you know what I mean? Right. Maybe You've had a nice I'm, string of employment. I'm, I'm in the privileged position that I can acquire employment in my chosen field. And so now I think, oh, well, really it's only because Problem of... Problem solved. No, no, now I measure my self-worth with art artistic merit, right. right? Not financial, but is that in and of itself its own type of measure of self-worth that might trigger shame? Like, like, like right. if I were to suddenly decide that I want to quote-unquote sell out and do some project that I really, that deeply want to get against my values, like what happens to me if I think that my self-worth is determined by the artistic choices I make. What happens to me when I make one choice that isn't artistic? Right. And I actually don't know because I haven't done that yet. What you're talking about is, is every human's dilemma, which is how do you strike a balance with yourself without having to achieve some, some sort of level of success, on, whether it's artistic or financial or whatever it is. H how, do you, how do you just be okay if those things aren't achieved? Yeah, you know how? You play guitar real shitty. <laughs> So that's how. You just <laughs> like, bang out I just horrible versions of like chord. yesterday. Yeah. Like I think I just learned how to do a, like a modified B chord and I was like, oh my God, I have so much self-worth. You know, I think the B chord is very hard, especially for hard... someone with crooked fingers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the B chord involves the pinky. strong, but like, yeah. I know. It's a, hard, it's a hard chord. No, but there must have been some point in your career where you looked at the numbers and said... Okay, first off, acting, it's incredibly hard to get a job, mm -hmm. even if your dad's the head of a studio and you're white and you're talented and beautiful. And it's still, you're going up against 80 people in an audition and it's still an incredibly hard numbers game. Yeah. But I looked up the numbers and apparently in the last 15 years, Asian Americans only accounted for 3% of all roles in every medium released in the United States. Yeah. 
And like 0% of any leading roles. 0% of any <laughs> leading roles. And to me, I would think that would have to hit you some days as you were struggling and not getting work. That yeah. this isn't all because you weren't pretty enough or talented enough. Yeah, no, I mean, it, I, and it's the opposite of me having some sort of delusional confidence. Because, you know, when I, when I was saying I had like a moment where I had to decide that getting a job was not a measure of my self-worth, it was the moment where I was like, are you okay if you're still waiting tables at 50 in order to like supplement your income to be able to do like one or two plays a year? And I said, yeah, I am. There are plenty of people whose occupation does not line up with their passion, for whom they just have a regular job. And then they do whatever is their hobby, whether it's like, I don't know, Fixing cars, <laughs> well, right? It's just that they just do, or like knowing baseball stats or whatever. Right. They do that on the side. I don't think there's any shame involved in being a waitress. I, I actually, I hate it when when actors are like, "I'm just glad not to be a waitress," and I'm like, "What the fuck is wrong with being a waitress?" Like, if you're an actor, you need to understand that there is a dignity in every way of living, including being a waitress. So let's not like poo-poo that, right? Stop put that on a poo poo platter. <laughs> platter. I just heard that and I was like, oh my gosh, so perfect. Um, but anyway, so I had this moment and um, I, I really always, I think that my identity is as an actor. I mean, my drama teacher was the only one who believed the truth of my truth because I did write that paper. I was so upset about that that I called that teacher after years of therapy when I was like 22. And did I was you like, really? I was like, yeah, you remember me? I really did write that paper, and it, it was wrong of you to tell me that I wasn't good enough to have written it. It affected me that bad. Like, and so like, for me, doing this has always been, being an actor has always been, probably since then, like, it's, it's not a job, it's an identity. So if I have to have a, another job that's not acting to pay the bills, what's wrong with that? A lot of people do that. I think um, that's commendable that you can admit that there's so much shame in the process of, of trying to get work in this field and, and, and that you've dealt with so much shame in yeah. that and yet you know that it's not something you would walk away from. Because a lot of people, I think, if they ran up against that much shame or that much failure over that long of a time before finding success, I think there would, it would look like relief to quit. Which is fine, but that's why you have to ask yourself the question. Like, are you fine doing that? And some people are like, no, you know, I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to take care of my parents if they got sick. And to do those kind of things, I need a better income. And, and I want an income that's stable and secure so that I don't have this anxiety every month right. when I have to pay the rent. There is nothing wrong with making that choice either. Um, it's, it's, it's so uh, easy to think that just because I said I'll be a waitress when I'm 50, that I think somebody who, who says I don't want to be a waitress when I'm 50 that they're like a lesser person. I don't feel that way at all. I think you just have to determine what's authentic to you and what's like your comfort level. How old were you when you had that talk with yourself? I think I was 30. When I ask when you were the most broke, what picture comes to mind? <laughs> I mean, I was very, I was worse than broke. I was in debt. You were? Yeah, I was uh, in credit card debt. I was in a lot of denial. I was just sort of like, And I don't think it's because I am, like, delusional 
I think I just didn't think about the future that much. And I was just like, oh, I need this. I want to do this. Let me just get another credit card. I was like $40,000 in credit card debt really? when I moved here. And because I don't have a regular job. That's why you left New York, because you were being chased by creditors. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that is not why I left New York. But uh, I had that debt, but it's like I was in a profession in which there's no foreseeable way out of it. Like you get that credit card statement and it's like, if you pay only the minimum, you will pay off this debt by this date. Yeah, Something, the year 3000. Yeah, so yeah. I, I just would ignore it. I just, I don't know, I just ignored it. And uh, until they stopped giving me credit cards. That's probably my bro most broke moment <laughs> when they stopped. Because I would like transfer balances so like the interest didn't like add up. And I would right. do all these like tricks. And I always paid on time. But it was always like the minimum minimum, right? Um, and then I had student loans, all that kind of stuff. And so I think when I came here and I stopped being able to get credit cards. And like I wasn't able to pay my student loans. Um, and I... I was broke in every sense. I had like a boyfriend that I really loved who broke my heart. Um, I had no money. Uh, I was, I didn't know where like my next meal was coming from. And that was a turning point for me because that was when I decided that all these other things, like a job, a boyfriend, cool clothes, cool car, bank account, portfolio, technically those things food. can- Food. Food. <laughs> even food. They could be taken away from you. They can they could leave or be taken away from you. But what you create internally is something that no one can take away from you. And it is something of which you have an infinite supply. And that, that's the work I try to, to do. So when I'm down, like I try to do something that's creative um, because that's, that's your strength. That's a strength. You, nobody can take that away. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and I think that every time an actor says, oh, I'm not working, so I'm not practicing my craft, it's like you can always practice your craft. Yeah, when I'm actually, if you ask my, ask my acting coach, so I work on my TV show five days a week. Right. Occasionally we, we have weeks off. And on my weeks off, or if I have a few weeks off of anything, I go to acting class. You do, still? Yeah, with all the other people in my acting class who are just struggling, just trying, and they're just like, oh my gosh, Constance isn't our acting class. And I'm like, yeah, because... And it's not because I'm like a super hard worker, I actually don't think, but it's also because it's just the most fun for me. You just I truly love, love it. it. I love it. Like I get, I get fucking into it, man. Even when we're in class and somebody's doing like a scene from like, I don't know, uh, Two and a Half Men or something, and they're just trying to learn how to do that comedy. Like, and it's not even me acting, but I'm watching them. And I'm watching how certain a certain action change can change them and like how it changes them and why. And then I get fucking so fucking pumped. Like I get excited just like getting in there and just finding the place where you can understand that person, but you can also let go of yourself and you could really just drop into it and then like be alive in the moment. Like that fucking shit. Like that is why I wake up in the morning. Like, and that's why I go to acting class on my days off because I fucking love it. Hey folks, let's take another little break from the conversation to talk about a new sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, if you're like me or like most any artist or most anybody who's lived any amount of time, at one point you've gone to or considered going to counseling or therapy. I've certainly spent time in therapy and I actually think it's essential for any artist to be able to work on themselves 
And I think the great thing about therapy is you go in there and you kind of identify the obstacles that are preventing you from happiness or from achieving your goals. Well, now there's BetterHelp Online Counseling, and it's there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient. So now you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. And you know, this isn't a crisis line. It's different. These are actual therapists that you can have multiple sessions with. And they have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And they're available worldwide. And there's four communication modes, text, chat, phone, and video. So you can start communicating with a therapist that is matched to you in under 24 hours. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. You know, therapy isn't something to joke about, but I will tell you how hard it is to initially find a therapist and to drive to an office and have a kind of get to know you session and then decide, do I go back to this person? Or if I don't and it didn't feel right, do I start the process over? Do I give them a chance? I think that's the hardest thing about going to therapy is finding a good therapist. And BetterHelp has so many therapists that it makes that process a lot easier. And best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for off-camera listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with the discount code CAMERA. That would make me feel good if someone found a therapist and then they got to save a little money because they listened to that show. That'd be a good thing. So why not get started today and check it out? Go to betterhelp.com camera. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and you get matched with a counselor that you'll love. So remember, go to betterhelp.com camera and use the code CAMERA for 10% off. Now back to the show. You know, it makes me curious what it felt like when you got fresh off the boat and for the first time you had a regular job that you got to go and do this every day. Like, was that a crazy transition to go from so much auditioning and, and acting classes and trying to get parts to actually having a steady job? Yeah, I mean, it was overwhelming. How did you sort of make the transition to... Yeah, and where did the I, shame I go? I didn't. I didn't do a very good job with the transition. I, I didn't, like I said, I'm psyched about acting. I love doing acting, and I grew up in the theater. Yeah. And in the theater, that's, that's it. You don't have to worry about ratings. I mean, maybe the producers, they're trying to get a return on their investment, stuff like that. Like, even though I thought it was the same thing, I thought acting on TV and films is the same thing as acting on stage. But when you're on a TV show... Um, and they're turning out scripts, and you have to like wait for lighting setups, and then you have to turn, turn the set around, and you have to like do press, and then you have to answer questions about what it means and everything like that. Not that I didn't enjoy that, because that was an interesting exercise for me, like doing press for the first time. But it was just a different beast. There was so many more elements that I did not know were there, and that I had no model for how to handle them. Right. No, I don't know anybody. In you don't, show you don't have an acting mentor at this point, someone you can call up. and Like right when you got the show, you were just on your own. Yeah. You are independent. I would say <laughs> you've, you've sort of gone on this journey by yourself. I need people so much. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but, but, but that's how it was. And also, Fresh Off the Boat was kind of my first comedy. Yeah. And so that... It was terrifying to me because, you know, I think sometimes with drama, 
it can feel subjective. Like some person might really think a performance is great and like some people might. But for the most part, if you come from the same culture, funny is funny. And so it's just sort of like it was terrifying for me to like try to be. Right. Am I funny? And is it working? And yeah. That was, uh, and it was great. Actually, the best thing about Fresh Off the Boat um, for me has been, and that's what you say about how lucky you are to have this thing you can go to every day. That's the best thing is that I get to act every day. It's like I get to do not just the thing I love the most, but sometimes I feel like it's like going to the gym. It's exercising. It's exercising these different muscles. This, this part of my craft I call abandon, that's something that you have to work at. You have to work at letting go, which right. sounds very like counterintuitive. But like when you have 100 episodes of something, it becomes a safer space for you to really do that and do it under lights, do it under a microphone, do it under pressure. Um, right, when you're getting a part here and then a month later a part there, there's, there's too much pressure, right? Yeah, and like doing this has been just like an incredible experience for me as an artist of just like, I've just discovered so many things about myself and how I work and how I best work and what's the best way to facilitate my character, what's the best way to keep my endurance so that like take one of the first hour of the day uh, is has the same energy as the last. Right, right? sure, Because yeah. you have to conserve your energy because the days are long. You know, one thing I learned is like towards the beginning of my career was uh, I tried to be like all like nice to everybody and like start a conversation with everybody, small talk with everybody to show that like I'm like... Like, I'm excited to be here, and I'm amenable and everything, and then I would be exhausted by the last take of the day. And I, I learned that it's okay to just be quiet and professional and respectful and relax and just conserve your energy so that you have it for the character because that's your oath of integrity. You have to do right by the character. And everybody else has their job. Camera guy's got to do right by the frame he's creating. Sound guy's got to do right by... The sounds they're creating. The decibels, the EQ. Yes. Yeah. We have to that, do Nate? right. You got to do right by the sound. How you feel? You feel like you got some integrity behind those cans? <laughs> These are cans. Oh, I thought you were talking about his cans. I know. <laughs> That's why I clarified. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about Crazy Rich Asians. Go for it. Because I feel like it was one thing on Fresh Off the Boat to be, you know, on television representing an Asian American family and having that be successful really for the first time ever. But somehow the narrative for Crazy Rich Asians, it really became about the fact that not since the Joy Luck Club had there been a, uh, you know, a film that, that had an entire Asian American cast. And it made me curious, did it ever feel like, you know, I just want to have the acting experience. I don't want to have the burden of having to speak for what became an incredibly complex conversation yeah. about representation in cinema. Yeah, I don't think of it as a burden. I think of it as a privilege. And you I, do. I do think that Fresh Off the Boat trained me really well in terms of how to deal with that because Fresh Off the Boat was also very, very historic. In some ways, I think it was more historic than Crazy Rich Asians. And yeah, it's true that like if I were Brad Pitt 
right now, you wouldn't be like, what's it like being a white actor? Or you might today. I might. You I'd might be like, now, but Brad, like, <laughs> are you getting any calls? Yeah, but some people are like, don't you just want to like talk about acting? But for me, I think actually the most fun thing about interviews like this, like yeah. the reason I love your series, is, is people ask you questions and it makes you think about things in a new way and you get to like, I don't know, I just learned so much through that journey that I previously didn't really think about because I was just focused on my craft as an actor. And when you learn things about people and how they are the way they are, whether that's because of systemic bias or privilege or whatever, you every bit of knowledge is a further understanding of humanity. And the more you understand what it means to be human, the better your acting is. So I think it's a tremendous privilege to be able um, to do that and to learn along with everybody else. Like I'm fucking up just like everybody else. Especially on guitar. Yeah, but I, that's in private. <laughs> Not anymore. Now you're gonna have to do like YouTube videos of I've you trying never. to play songs. Oh my like God. trying to play Freebird or no. something. No, oh my God. I so, just learned to landslide. Oh, did you? That's, that's one of my favorite songs. It's beautiful, Great isn't song. It? Fleetwood Mac. I know. It's like that song, um, have you heard the Johnny Cash version of Hurt? Yes. So, Isn't that great? It's so great. I like it a lot better than the original. Do you play that on guitar? I can't. I don't think my voice would let me sing that. Well, you, you have to like make it your own. Exactly. I don't have any material from which to make it my own. Like I, I know I my limitations. Hurt. Yes, but that's you I know focus my limitations. On the, pain. the needle tears a hole. The only thing like I can't like. Although, you know, I was going to play a heroin addict for a while, then I had to, like, drop out of this movie. And I did, like, tons of research. I I hope you didn't do, like, real method research. (laughs) No, I didn't. I didn't do method research. I'm not. I'm not. Sometimes I think when people do that, it's... Everything you do should be in service of the character. And sometimes I think when people go that intense and they talk about it... It's almost more for their own ego. Yeah, like, for sure. Like, look how far I went. I mean, because there are definitely some things I've done that have gone very far, but, like, I don't tell people about them because the moment I feel myself doing that, I'm like, oh, you're looking for congratulations. Is that, and, is that a good transition into talking about Hustlers and how yeah, far you went into prep? <laughs> <laughs> I went far into prep. That's all I'll say. Well, let me say just briefly that Hustlers is a new film that you have with J-Lo. Yeah. And it's based on a true story, which was this really amazing magazine article that went viral um, about, was it Scores? Was the strip club in New York Mm -hmm. where these women were uh, roofing men and then stealing their credit card and charging all all kinds of charges. And uh, and they had sort of this ring going. And what's really interesting about this film is that it's not played for the extremes as much as it is for the humanity of it and and I was just curious about the impetus and when you saw the script and take me through the process of of how you got excited about doing it and why you wanted to do it and well I I got excited from the script I think in terms of the arc of destiny the character destiny where she starts where she ends the roller coaster of experiences she gets to have in between in terms of like a playground for an actor to really just dig into all the different facets. I mean, it was a dream to play her. You get to fully realize her. And it's funny because I talk a lot about how we don't have lead actors or leading parts that are Asian. And I think it's important to make the distinction that it's not because I think supporting parts are any 
lesser than. And because and, if I play supporting part, I treat it like a leading part. Sure. But what's in the script and in the story obviously doesn't center around the supporting character. And so when you have a leading character, because you get to see the full journey and because the story's about them, that's how you humanize somebody and avoid stereotypes. Asians love to talk about like, oh, how do you defy stereotypes by like refusing to play them? And I'm like, no, of course not. Stereotyped people are human too. Just because somebody else has stereotyped them doesn't mean we should be like, oh, I don't want you to play that. Put your stories in the dark. We don't want people to see them. No, I'm like, if anything, those are the people who deserve to have their stories more humanized than anybody else. Right, you want to take those the, stories and you want to color in all the yes. places that have never been touched and yes. fill in all the details that have never been considered important before. Yes, and when you're in the lead, you have the pages of the script to fill in all that color. You have the opportunity to do it. Right. So it's, because the thing about stereotypes is, stereotypes in and of themselves, I don't think... Uh, well, I think stereotypes are only harmful when they are a reduction of a person. Right, right. So I'm a stereotypical actress. It's kind of. I'm really emotional. I cry real easy. I don't know. But that's not all I am, right? I'm also a shitty guitar player, right? right? But, but if someone were to reduce me just to a shitty guitar player or just somebody who has an accent or just somebody who's good at math, yeah, that sucks. But if... Well, you become a device. You become a plot yeah. point or something that the a script can turn device. on. A narrative device. And that's what... And it's a reduction. And that's happened over and over again in cinema. Stereotypes are very effective because we have a little bit of knowledge about it. So we go, oh, that, that works for that. Now I get what that character is and yeah. I can move on. I mean, and I, I understand why that would be the case. I mean, you don't want to... You know, as an artist, when you're telling a story, you want to have clarity of your vision. You don't want to just service all these other characters just so you could say you serviced them. Your commitment is to the story as a whole. And even though every little minor character in your play or book or movie might have their own story, right now that's not the story you're telling. So I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, having that focus. Um, I think producers should be a little bit aware of the fact that using stereotypes as devices or tropes is unoriginal yes. and lazy. So maybe something will be interesting and more dynamic if you put something else in there, although it's still going to be a device because that supporting character is not the leading character. It's just a little lazy, and I think anytime you're encouraged to expand your idea of the possibility is never a bad thing. Right. What you're talking about is when you, when you dig in and try to do things right and, and be honorable to your entire story, better work comes out of it. It's not just that you're righting a wrong. and It's not this yeah. just, oh, we have to check the box of now we have to do it this way because the industry has changed. It's, yeah. it's that better stories come out. That's been proven time and time again, especially recently. And I think Hustlers is a good example of that. If anything, the people who come off the worst are the white men in the movie. <laughs> But the women don't come off that much better. What's interesting about this film is that there's not this goal to have... Hero-villain. Hero-villain. Yeah, there isn't. Everybody's complex. This movie does not villainize somebody who it's very easy to villainize, which is Wall Street. I mean, villainizes them to a point, but then there's like some people who really were affected by this, right? Right, right. Um, If I were to play one of those Wall Street guys, 
I would actually take the time to understand why these guys are such assholes. And when you do that, you understand that, like, just like I think that my self-worth is determined by whether I'm pretty or a good enough actress or have a job, men are told almost every day that their self-worth is determined by the size of their bank accounts. So in a way, they are victims too, but it still is, from the human standpoint, it's still something that's a... that you could understand um, where it comes from and, and doesn't villainize the men. It just calls to our attention the fact that we value women based, women based on their looks yeah. and men on their bank accounts. And the fact that both parties, both genders in this movie are exploiting a system that has been put upon them. And there's no like fault. It's just a way to think about things. Right. Well, it certainly makes you look at the whole industry in a different way. Yeah. And one of the things I found most interesting was that your relationship with Jennifer Lopez's character, Mona, is almost mother-daughter. Yeah, like, that's, I love that you got that. That's what I was going for. Well, it completely <laughs> comes across in the sense that you want her approval so bad. Yeah. And you want her permission and you want to know what she thinks of you. And in terms of process... Because you say you wanted that to come across, this mother-daughter relationship, and it clearly did. And I don't think it did because it was written in the script. I think it did because of of the internal life that you created for this character, and that was transferred to me. I'm so glad. Yeah, but... We built that into Destiny's story. That's what we do, is, like, we build a history, like, memories as specific as, oh, my God, when I was in eighth grade, I really wanted to get this pair of Vans, and so I saved up all my money, and I went to the store, but then I didn't think about the tax... And so then I couldn't get them, and then I was really embarrassed because I didn't have enough money at the counter. And, like, of course, that's not in the script, but you make up these little stories so you have them in your bones, um, and you sort of build a mountain of them, and then you ski down the mountain. We know when something works when it, when it drops in, when it clicks inside. And usually if you have that twinge inside, it means yeah. that your heart has an emotional history in this same landscape. And that's always a good thing because then you can access it. It doesn't mean you have to think of your own private memory of something. It just means that this is a place that you have been through before and that you have gotten through and that you understand. So if you know you've gotten through it, it's, it's almost safer to go there in somebody else's place. Hey folks, Sam Jones here, taking a little break from the conversation, because I want to tell you that Earwolf has a new podcast about get-rich-quick schemes, and it's called Get Rich Nick. Hosts Nick Turner and Nick Vatterot try everything under the sun to make money now, fast, today, including horse racing, lemonade stands, donating plasma, trivia nights, task rabbit, and many more. Some of them work, but most of them don't, and that's kind of the genius of the show. You know, I had a get-rich-quick scheme once when I was in college. Actually, it wasn't really a get-rich-quick scheme. It was more of a get-free-food scheme. But if you eat enough free food, you're going to get rich because you don't spend money on food. So anyway, that was just when Domino's started the 30 minutes or less delivery policy. And I was living in a dorm room, and we would call the pizza guy and order our pizza, and then we would go down and lock the front door of the dorm. So he would get there, and by the time he found someone to open the door to deliver the pizza, he was always late, and we would get our pizza for free. Well, this worked maybe once before they caught on to us, and then they said they weren't delivering pizzas anymore to that dorm. (laughs) So I didn't get rich, but... 
I think this is indicative of the kind of first-class humor you're going to hear on Get Rich Nick. So tune in to Get Rich Nick. You can subscribe to Get Rich Nick now in your podcast app and dive into the hilarity and the fascination. Plus, they interview fellow comedians and specialists like Henry Zabrowski, Matt Kirshen, and J.C. Caccioli. So check it out and subscribe to Get Rich Nick. And while you're subscribing to podcasts, I hope you've already subscribed to this one. Now back to the show. I do think something happens in a movie when, as an audience member, you really feel something. It does feel like truth. Yeah. And it does feel like you're experiencing someone's version of a truth. And, yeah, it's and the whether magic. it's that's the magic. That's why we love it. You know, it, it makes me wonder about a scene in Crazy Rich Asians when you're playing Mahjong and Whew. you've gone there to tell your potential husband's mother that you've turned down his proposal of marriage. Yeah. And at one point, you say, I know I'm good enough. And at that point, there's tears in your eyes, but there's this resolute strength in the scene. And I went back and watched the movie again, knowing you were coming in. And that scene struck me in the theater. It struck me again watching it just the other night because, again, I felt like something was really going on there that wasn't just in the script or wasn't yeah. engineered into the scene by a great director and a great writer. There are definitely lines that sing. Like, I think the... The line like, um, like I, like I know I'm good enough. Like I think that would always sing to me because I think when you grow up as a woman in America, people think it's unbecoming to assert your worth and to own your worth. I mean, even in Hollywood, it's more like the who me. I was plucked. I was discovered. Well, see, a woman I, I, is a discovery, right? Yeah. So saying that takes an awful lot of strength. But then I built a whole other thing about how Rachel's identity, like how she goes on this trip because she's never been to Asia, even though she's Asian American. She never quite fit into America. So she's going to Asia with such hope in her heart of finally finding a sense of place and a sense of worth. And then she gets there and she's bullied and she's shamed and she's like beat up essentially only to come back to, and this is probably where it intersected with me, which is understanding that, like, oh, I came here and I didn't find my identity. My identity is something in here. Right. It's my mom. It's, like, who I am. It's me being able to walk away from you and walk away from the man I love because I'm not, because I have the strength to love more deeply than you do. Like, I love him so much that I'm going to sacrifice that so that he doesn't have to give up his family, because I know that he won't. Like, that is, I mean, it's kind of making my heart pound even thinking about it, saying it, because it, when I built that in there, um, you know, it dropped in. It was just like, and, and when that happens, it just, it just floods you. Uh, that's the magic you're talking about, because yeah. I would imagine, you know, you do all the work as an actor and you do what you say, which is you build this thing in there. But then on the day, you're filming it and there's the other actor across and you're saying these words and they have meaning and, and here's this person reacting to them. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it is real. Yeah. I mean, there's cameras and everything, but it's real. Oh, yeah. You're, sh you're passing this real emotions back here, and forth. This space here, this is 100% real, this space here. Right. Yeah, there's all the stuff around, but this space between two people. And there's got to be, I mean, there's the character, but there's also just you saying to her, I'm enough. Yeah. I'm, 
and, and that must be sometimes overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It's just when it gets quiet. That's, it's like the quiet is a place because we're so busy like running around in our heads that we don't let the dust settle to the bottom of the puddle so we can't see the bottom of the puddle. So when you have that quiet, which film sets can be very quiet. Right. Like it just takes you to a place that's just really special. I say as I get very quiet. (laughs) What do do you think someone almost can't understand about fame until you've had it? Because I'm assuming after Crazy Rich Asians. Well, first of all, it's uncouth to even talk about it because it is a position that a lot of people covet. Desire. Right? So to even talk about it in a way that is complex can come off as ingratitude, right? Um, Which you don't want to have because you are grateful for this tremendous opportunity, but like you also have feelings of like loneliness or paranoia or fear or all these things. And while you can no longer just work them out in the space, you just sort of have to find your safe places, which I am still finding. Um, Part of me is torn because it's like, yeah, you shouldn't show the ugly parts of fame because people would kill to be in your position. But then part of me is like, you want to destroy the myth of, like, the red carpet. And I mean that even in terms of, like, Instagram. Like, it's like the highlight reel of our lives. Because if you look at somebody's life on Instagram, you think everything's perfect, and then you are sitting alone with your feelings, and you're like, nobody else is having these. I am alone. That's harmful. And I think the reason we go seek out art It's because other people are like, no, I'm going to show you this ugly side, this vulnerable side, this hard side of me. And then you see that and you're like, oh, I'm not alone. But that takes a certain type of courage. And I'm still like navigating how to like how and if it should at all be applicable in my public life. Um, Because it is. It used to be like so easy, like my life I lead should be in line with my values and my principles. That's it. It's not that way anymore because if you do something that is in the larger picture in line with your values and principles, but in the smaller picture isn't, that can become your total, your entire story. Right. And and your story can get drowned out by the reaction to to your action. Yeah. So I don't know. It's like, but do you change and cater your authenticity to somebody else's reduction of you? Or do you just continue being your authentic self? I actually don't have an answer for that. Um, Because, you know, there's also an argument that like, well, there is an authentic self of you that is a little bit more (laughs) like publicly appropriate. Yeah. But when you pick and choose... When you cherry pick your authenticity, that's like your Instagram reel, right? Right. That's when those moments of loneliness, those moments that people need because they're feeling so alone and isolated and they're seeing everybody else's lives on the screen. That's what people need. I really don't know because you also have to take care of yourself. Um, And I think taking care of yourself means trying to expose, not expose your private life too much. As you talk about this, I realize what, what a conundrum it is because on one hand, I really respect the fact that there's been many times where you've spoken about things 
that are important to you. Oh yeah, I'm real impulsive. Yeah, they get you in a bit of trouble, and you express a very human feeling. Yeah. And then you get this giant backlash because now you're famous and everyone knows who you are and you have things to say. And I really respect that. I I think that it takes a lot of courage to finally achieve the dream that you always wanted to be a working actor and do this every day and then worry that, oh, if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing or upset the wrong person, all that could go away, you know? Because I think this business, there's a history of say the wrong thing and then you don't get to work anymore, especially as a woman. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I wonder if you had to sort of make peace with that and go, look, I'm going to be myself regardless. I mean, here's the thing. I don't, you said, did you say you thought it was admirable or you respected it? I do. I, I respect it. I actually don't. I don't admire or respect that impulsive side of me. You don't? I I don't. I own up to the fact that it is a true part of me. I also can recognize that there are times when that part of my nature is very helpful in certain situations in acting. Just being reactive to stimuli in the moment. Sure, you have to be impulsive as an actor, right? That's very helpful. That's when things surprise you. Um, So I don't... But this is my conundrum is because like people... Yeah, so I might be impulsive and then like the media runs away with it and and I don't actually think that one of my outbursts is representative of who I am. Because I think it's a moment of heat. Which but, is very human. Yes. But if that's the thing that gets amplified, if we have a mural of a fire and then we have a little postage stamp of the ocean. All you're going to see is the fire, right? So, sure. you know, it's... But then if you worry too much about that, then you start down the rabbit hole of, like, worrying about self-image. And when you start doing that, then it engages your ego. And when you start engaging your ego, it actually really affects your acting performances. So... It all comes back to acting for you. It's like... Yeah. It, it's... I, 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 I just... I love it. Yeah, but I, but this is what I respect most of all, is that you're not willing to create some sort of a, a tempered persona in the service of protecting your career or or acting in a way that, that will always work for you yeah. in the public eye. And that you accept, whether you respect it or not, you accept that you're impulsive and, and that this is part of your humanity. Yeah. And I think that's what makes you an artist, is that is that you're willing to to like accept the whole package, even even to sit here and say, I, I wouldn't call my parents when I didn't get a part because I felt shameful. Yeah, like you sort of seem like somebody who's going to take the whole roller coaster ride. Roller coasters are fun. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? <laughs> you know, that's the fun part. I don't want to like stand in line on the platform. I want to even the even the scariest part of the roller coaster. It's fun. Yeah, that's how it feels. Well. I could talk to you for hours, and <laughs> I've enjoyed talking to you about your career, and I'm very impressed with you. And, and oh, thanks. I, I am, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, I've enjoyed talking to you, so too. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey folks, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Boy, I love talking to Constance because she seems so connected to her craft and so in love with what she does. And she had to wait so long to do it on this level. And it's humbling to talk to somebody who worked that hard to make their dream come true. If you haven't seen Fresh Off the Boat or Crazy Rich Asians, 
Go check those out. I know they're making sequels to Crazy Rich Asians, so that's coming down the road. But also, make sure to check out Hustlers. It's an amazing ensemble cast of women, including Cardi B and Jennifer Lopez and Constance. And it's a really nuanced tale of this true story about what happened in New York at, I think, Score's strip club. And it's kind of fascinating how the film uses the strip club as a metaphor for life. It's pretty disturbing, and Constance does an amazing job in it. So check all that out. And although we can't promise any lap dances, you should also check out OffCamera.com. Because there you can find nuanced and deep conversations from every artist we've ever had on this show. Now, if you listen to this show every week, you know that we are also a TV show and a magazine. And if you have DirecTV, you can see us every week on the Audience Network, Channel 239. It's a great way to see the show. They broadcast in high definition, and we're on several times a week. So please check that out. Also, if you're loving this podcast, please subscribe. Because when you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. They'll be waiting for you in your podcast queue. It only takes a minute. Just go to Apple, hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, if you want to leave us a rating, that helps too, because it helps other people find the show. Now, if you want to see the television show and you don't have DirecTV, you can also get our monthly subscription. And for $4.99 a month, you can have access to over 200 episodes that we've made. That's going back almost six years now. And you can watch them on any device as many times as you like. So it's a great deal, and it's a great way to dive deeper into the show. So check all that out. You can also find us on social media, and you can talk about us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And Twitter is a great place to offer us a guest suggestion or ask a question about the show. And if you go to my Instagram, you can see a lot of behind-the-scenes photos from this show. And you can take a deeper dive into the photography we make when each guest comes in. So check all that out. Also, if you want to send me an email, do you need some bad advice? Do you want to share something that's going on with you? Or do you just want to get something off your chest? If you do, send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. I also want to thank everyone that works on this show. I know I say it each week, but there would be no way for us to do this show without the talents of these fine people. Nathan Shields, Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. So when you're enjoying off-camera, you can thank them for it. Also, I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in each week. Obviously, we wouldn't have a show if nobody listened to it. But more importantly, I really enjoy all the feedback I get from seemingly this amazing audience of artists. And I get the sense that the people that listen to this show are also pursuing a creative path and are trying to make it in the thing that makes them creatively excited. And it's an honor to be a part of a community like that. So... I want to thank all of you for tuning in, and I will tell you I feel lucky to have this job because I get to tune into some of the finest creative minds of mine or any other generation, and I learn something new each week. So thank you for listening and helping make this show a reality. And be sure to join me next time when I sit down with comedian, writer, actor, director, creator, and showrunner Andrea Savage. I feel complimented when somebody says, you're such a dude. And for so many years, I took that as like, a, I have four brothers. Yeah, I'm, I'm whatever. And in the past couple of years, doing my own show and being in my writer's room, I'm like, why do I find that to be more of a compliment that if someone was like, you're very feminine, I'm like, boof, barf. And I'm like, no, no, that's not actually, you got to think about that. And I've really tried to change that weird thing in my head of, no, I mean, it's not an insult to be called a man, but. You can also just be like, you're a funny fucking lady. You're feminine and funny. Those don't have to be at odds with each other. 
Andrea's true TV comedy series, I'm Sorry, is soon going into its third season, and it's as hilarious as it is groundbreaking in its depiction of marriage, parenthood, and Hollywood. The show is built around Andrea's real-life experiences, and her desire to make the show as authentic as possible makes each episode as truly relatable as it is funny. I fell in love with Andrea's sense of humor, but also with her keen observational powers that allow me to see my own life reflected back at me. Andrea sits down with me to talk about creating a writing room for I'm Sorry that is therapeutic and sacred, how injustice brings out her confrontational side, and how she is legitimately not a crazy person. She swears. See you next time, off camera.